My wife has been gone for the last two weeks, uh, so I've been bacheloring it up. And uh, so uh, she usually helps me get dressed in the morning, so I look presentable, especially when I preach sermons. She's always like, you know, helping me out a little bit. So I hope I look okay this morning. There's been several times I've walked out and she's like, you're not wearing that to church, are you? I'm like, no, I'm just showing you what I'm not going to wear to church. <laughs> just trying to be funny. I'm going back and changing right now. I'm done being funny. Uh, so I, I, I know you guys got to look at me, so I, I hope I look okay up here. I, I, I really tried hard. So, uh, but I hate suffering, and I don't know about you, but I'm a pansy when it comes to suffering. Worst night of my life, about a month ago, My wife's been saying that I stop breathing when I sleep. She doesn't think it's a good thing. So she said, go get a sleep study done. So I'm getting a sleep study done. Worst night of my life. They got me all wired up. I mean, there's wires on my legs to my head. They got wires in my head. And then they shove a camera in your face and you lay down. And the old lady nurse is like, go to sleep. (laughs) I don't sleep well under pressure. So I'm wired up laying on my back with a bunch of wires everywhere. I feel like I'm being experimented on. And I know there's ladies in the other room just watching me intently saying, you can go to sleep now. You can go to sleep now. And I'm, I'm trying. And uh, it, it was awful because, well, she said, she said, well, the, the wires on your head, that is, that is where I can track your brain activity. So I'm there laying, great, now she can read my every thought. Like that's the creepiest nightmare ever come true, that now this lady's reading my every thought, and then I'm thinking, you know, if an electrical storm happens and there's like, you know, lightning and stuff, and the lightning strikes the building, the TV's not going to be the only thing that's going to be blowing here. My, my brain is connected to wires, and uh, I, might, I might not make it through the night. So I'm, I'm laying there wide awake, I can't sleep, and I'm trying hard, and God bless Larry's heart, but Larry and I both went in, there. we met in the, in the room in the sleep wing, and we both knew we were in there because we snored, and we both knew it was going to be a race about who falls asleep first. And if it's not the biggest oversight in the universe that they wouldn't put insulation in the walls in the sleep study wing of the hospital, but he beat me to it, and uh, man, I just couldn't fall asleep. I felt like, I felt like a three-year-old all over again. I'm laying there, and I'm like, bad memories all come back when I couldn't sleep as a kid. I was like, could I? Can I have a glass of water, please? And she brought me some water. And I almost went another step because I felt so foolish. And I was like, hey, can you check under the bed, too, for me real quick? <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. But why? And then, and then it got worse. Uh, last Monday, they, well, they called me back and said, look, yeah, you're, you have obstructive sleep apnea. Basically, I, I quit breathing a lot when I sleep. And they're like, you need to come back and get retested and get a CPAP. So a mask. So it's going to be the exact same thing except we're going to add a mask to your face this time, which I'm like, great, wonderful. So I go back in and go through another whole sleep study. Why? Like, why would I endure such suffering? Well, it was because the joy set before me of knowing that maybe if I do this sleep study, I'll wake up in the morning and not feel so foggy in the brain and actually have some energy in the morning. I love that. So with that kind of before me, I decided I'm going to do these sleep studies. I'm just going to grin and bear it because maybe, just maybe, it'll mean that I'll sleep better. Point being this, we are willing to endure suffering when we think the cause is worth it. It's true. 
fact, a lot of us don't have any trouble suffering at all, depending on the cause. So we're talking about the cross this morning, and uh, yes, or last Sunday, Kelsey preached a great sermon um, on what the cross meant to God, and what it showed us about God, his being righteous, and him being just, and him being the justifier. And today we're going to take a different look at the cross, a different angle, we're going to unpack the question of what did the cross mean for Jesus? When Jesus looked at this cross and thought about the cross, what was going on in his mind? What did the cross mean to Jesus? And as I studied scripture this week and I prayed for guidance, and uh, there was three things from scripture that really jumped out that Jesus talked about the cross meaning to him. And the three things are radical obedience, intense suffering, and becoming our mediator. And this morning, what I want to do for, for us is I want to unpack these three objectives to understand what the cross meant to Jesus. So let's start with radical obedience. So our, our most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. So God loved us. And that was one of his motivations for the cross, as Kelsey talked about last Sunday. That he sent Jesus to be a sacrifice. So Jesus' role in the cross was not love for us, even though he does love us, and I'm so grateful. His role was to be the sacrifice, was to be obedient. And we get a little picture about the intense suffering that was going on here by the garden. You, look, you read the passage about the garden. Here's Jesus, and he is so in agony, and everything's so intense and full of sorrow that there's actually blood vessels bursting in his head, and he's actually sweating out blood because of this agony, and he's pleading with the Father. He's saying, Father, if there's another way, if there's any other way, please, 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 don't make me suffer this way. And then he goes on to say, but nevertheless... I want your will to be done, not mine. This absolute radical obedience where he says, it's not about me. If this is your cause, I'm willing to suffer through it. Jesus knew this this suffering of this cup of God's wrath that was going to be poured out on him. He knew that this was going to cause extreme pain. And he still obeyed. And the Bible makes a pretty big deal about his obedience. If you look at Romans, I'm going to be, by the way, flying through Scripture. There's a lot of Scripture. So unless you won all the sword drills growing up in the youth group where you had to flip through the Bible, unless you won all that, you probably won't be able to keep up. I'll put most Scriptures on the slides for you. Um, And there'll be a few that I'll ask you to turn to. There will be a passage in Isaiah and a passage in John that I want you to turn to. Otherwise, you can kind of follow the screen as I give you Scripture Um, to show you uh, the points here. So radical obedience, Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man, and so by one man's obedience, the many were also made righteous. So for one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. So the first man here is Adam. By his disobedience, we were all entered into sin. But then by one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, we all now can be made righteous. Hebrews 10, 7. Then I say, behold, I have come to you to do your will, O God, for it is written of me in the scroll 
of the book. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So here's Jesus, even on the cross, he's suffocating and bleeding to death, hanging on a cross, and even in that moment, he's thinking, what must I do to obey the prophecies? Talk about radical obedience. Even when he's suffocating to the point of death, he's thinking, what must I do? He's like, okay, uh, I need to ask for a drink to say I'm thirsty, because that was something that was prophe- prophesied about the cross. What could motivate such drastic, radical obedience? What would motivate Jesus to be so obedient, even obedient to death on a cross? Hebrews uh, 12, 1 through 2. It says, therefore we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Catch this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Here we get this picture of something was set in front of Jesus, a vision of something that made him so full of joy and so excited that he would actually endure the cross. What was that? What was set before Jesus that he was like, it's worth enduring the cross for this vision I see of what could possibly happen? John 17. Let's go ahead and turn there. We're gonna, that's this. John 17 is the prayer that Jesus prayed right before the crucifixion. His disciples are with him and he's praying this prayer out. I love John 17 because if you want to hear the heart of somebody, listen to how they pray. When people pray, when they come before God, you start to hear what they really care about, what's really close to their heart. And this is a chance in Scripture we actually get to see Jesus' heart and the stuff he really cares about. So starting with uh, verse 1 in John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then later in verse 4, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Are you catching this? Jesus is giving us his motivation for what was set before him. It was to glorify the Father. That motivated him. He wanted to see the Father glorified above all else, that he was willing to be obedient even to death on a cross because the joy that was set before him, what he was seeing, was that God was going to be made known to the world through the cross, and he wanted him glorified. John 14, 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Father may be glorified in the Son. There Jesus again is saying, I will do whatever it takes so the Father may be glorified in the Son. Over and over, Jesus makes it clear that he is willing to suffer and he is willing to die for the glory of God. Now listen, church, as followers of Christ, we claim that. As followers of Christ, we should be paying real close attention to the things that Jesus is obsessed over. Because how can we claim to follow someone that we don't even share the same passions with? And if Jesus is obsessed to this even to the point of death to the glory of God that God would be made much that God would be glorified and we claim to be followers of Christ our actions should match up so the second thing that motivated Jesus for this radical obedience 
was love of the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus loved the Father. And he wanted to please the Father because he loved him so much. And that was his motivation. That he was willing to endure this cross, the intense suffering and everything with it. Because he looked ahead and it gave him so much joy in his heart to see Christ glorified and to see a practical way of him loving Christ. And he's like, it's worth it. And he became our sacrifice. Let's move on to the second thing of what the cross meant to Jesus. And that is intense suffering. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. If you want to, you can put your finger in John 17 to keep it there. We'll go back a little bit later. But let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 3 here. I hate talking about the suffering of Christ. And I think every time we talk about this, there's a certain soberness that comes with it because this was our pain. This was our suffering. This was our punishment. We deserve this. This was for us. And every time we read about Christ's suffering on the cross, it should be a sober reminder that that should have been us. We're the ones who wronged. We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who messed up. We're the ones who deserve a punishment. Listen to this kind of suffering, this intense suffering that Jesus went through. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus suffered severely on the cross when he was completely innocent, had done nothing wrong. Three ways that he suffered. Physically, incredible physical suffering. Emotionally and mentally, and spiritually, I want to kind of walk us through this. Physical suffering. Isaiah 52 says that just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. Do you understand what that what scripture is saying? He was marred beyond human likeness. That means they beat him so badly, you couldn't even tell who he was anymore. Jesus was absolutely slaughtered on our behalf. They stripped him of his clothes. Public humiliation. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They made him publicly carry his cross until he was just too weak, had lost too much blood. They drove nails in his hands and his feet. Can you imagine the pain of having a nail driven through your hands and your feet? And they raised him high up in the air to suffocate and to bleed to death. What incredible suffering. What a sobering thought that he would do that. Out of obedience to God. Emotional and mental suffering. 
Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about like a lot of emotional and mental suffering of Jesus, but I think we can assume that there was some pretty intense agony with his emotions and mentally going on. I mean, let's look, let's look at some assumptives here. Peter was one of his closest friends. I don't know if you've ever had a close friend backstab you before, but that's pretty painful emotionally. And while he's being beaten, Peter, his close friend, denies that he even knows the guy three times. Can you imagine the emotional pain of Jesus in that moment? 1 Peter 2, 22 to 23 says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, yet they hurled insult at, insults at him. He did not retaliate. He committed no sin. Even Pilate, who was judging him, said, Look, this guy's completely innocent. I don't know if you've ever been accused of something that you didn't do and had to get punished for it. Happened to me all the time. There's 12 of us kids. You know, mom and dad were always scratching their head trying to figure out who did it. We were all pointing fingers at each other. You know, I think it's hard to decide between three kids, you know, who did it. You think about 12 candidates here, and they're scratching their heads saying, what's going on? I got spanked for a lot of things that I never did. Mostly because I had eight sisters who were really good at conniving against me. But it's awful to be punished for something that you never did. There's a lot of emotional turmoil and pain that goes on there. Can you imagine Jesus taking on the sin of the world and knowing that he's completely innocent and standing before them and they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Let Barabbas go. He's a murderer, he's a thief. Let him go. Jesus is worse. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's like, he didn't do anything wrong. Like, crucify I'm not going to go anymore. I don't, I don't want to subject you know, personal opinion, but I want us to at least get to start to thinking about the emotional and the mental suffering that Jesus would have went through as our sacrifice. Let's talk about the third way he suffered, which is the worst by far, and that's spiritual suffering. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do we understand the weight of that verse? Okay, think one time, just one time that you sinned, and you really messed it up, and you couldn't sleep that night because you felt so shameful, and it was haunting you, and you woke up the next day, and you just felt guilty, and you weren't yourself, and you're like, man, this is so hard. And that's just one sin. Like, it's so hard to deal with this. You had to, you had to deal with it. You're like, this is so hard. It's difficult. One sin. I'm sure we can all think of one time we've sinned that was just totally messed up our week. Maybe messed up our year. Maybe messed up a couple years of our life. We had to get over this. Can you imagine, in a moment, Jesus taking on the guilt, the condemnation of every sin that was ever done by humanity. Every lie ever spoken, every wrong thought, every action ever done in sin, and he took that on himself. Can you imagine the incredible suffering of bearing the sins of the whole world on your shoulder and getting crucified for it, and you were innocent? What incredible baggage that would be to bear. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin 
for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God was being poured out on him for all of sin. And he was feeling that separation from God. That sin causes, you know, when you sin, you, you can't be right with God. You try to do devotions, you try to hang out with God. It doesn't work because there's sin in your life. And can you imagine the separation he felt? And on the cross, he's screaming and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, whether God actually had separated himself from Jesus or Jesus was just feeling the intense separation caused by sin, I'm not sure. But either way, you've got to understand the Father and the Son had never, had never had anything between them. They were in perfect unity, working as one. And in Jesus' deepest suffering and pain, the wrath of God was poured out on him. And he felt that separation. And it devastated him. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being separated from God is the worst pain, the worst suffering anyone could ever face. Let's move to the third thing, that what the cross meant to Jesus. And this was him becoming our mediator to fill the gap. The problem was that we had sinned. We couldn't be with God. God's holy, God's righteous, we're sinful. How does that mix? It doesn't mix. Somebody had to stand in the gap. Someone had to fill the space. Someone had to be the bridge. Someone had to help us connect to God. And Jesus became our mediator. When he looked at the cross and he said it meant intense suffering, it meant radical obedience, and it meant that he could become our mediator. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to know God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Romans 5, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who was, raised to, who was raised to life at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Since then we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. He is our mediator. And you're going to want to know why? What was the motivation when he looked forward at being our mediator? What did he see that gave him joy, that endured the cross? He wanted us to know God. He became our mediator so people could know the only true God because there was no other way. Going back to John 17, to the prayer. Listen to his heart, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Let's, let's look at verse 11 of John 17. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. This is him praying out. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is looking at the Father and saying, we're connected, we're one, we have this relationship. I want everybody to know you, God, to have that kind of intimate relationship with you. I'm willing to be the mediator. We forget sometimes that Jesus mentioned, at any point in time, I can call down armies of angels. 
And all the suffering can stop. No one's forcing me to do this. I choose this out of radical obedience because I want to be the mediator for mankind. Okay, it's one thing for us to be forced into suffering. It's another thing to choose it. And Jesus made it very clear, I choose this. I could stop at any point in time. No one has power over me, but I choose it for this cause. If you look at verse 22 of John 17, later on in the prayer, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Just again, over and over, I want them to know God, that they may be one. They may have this relationship with God, just the way we have this relationship. I want it for everybody. So that's what the cross meant to Jesus. It meant radical obedience, intense suffering, becoming our mediator. And for the joy set before him of people, of, of God being glorified, of the Father being glorified and lifted high, and of love for the Father, desire to see him lifted high, and because he knew that without him we would never know God and could never know the Father and never be in communion with the Father and we were all damned to hell. He did this. I want to end with a challenge. I mean, there's a million directions we can go from here. I hope the Holy Spirit's speaking in your life. I hope that um, he's changing you. As I studied this, I mean, it's really changed me. It's been a hard week studying this stuff. Um, I don't know how many times I... Just got choked up thinking about this incredible sacrifice on my behalf. But this is what I want to challenge you with this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And catch this. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, we have been healed. He healed our wounds. He healed our spiritual wounds. By his wounds, we've been healed. And we've been given grace. But why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. I know we're all sinners. I'm one of them. I'm a sinner in the room. As, as I've been following Christ since at the age of eight, I still mess up. You'd think at 29 I'd get it. No, I still mess up. And God was so gracious in giving us grace on the cross here that when we sin, our sins are covered. We don't have to pay that punishment for it. We don't have to pay the price. But this is my fear and this is my challenge is sometimes that we use the cross and we use grace as an excuse to keep sinning, as an excuse to kind of live in sin because we don't have to pay the effects of it. This is my challenge we need to become people of repentance. Guys, if we have sin in our life that we know about and we're like, eh, 
I'm forgiven of it. Eh, you know, I'll just ask God tonight to forgive me and it'll be fine. We cheapen the cross. We mock the cross. We cheapen what God, so he paid such an incredible sacrifice. It was so pricey to him. And he was willing to pay it. And when we have sin in our lives, and we're not about striving for holiness and righteousness to get rid of sin and to throw it off and to live for him, and we have sin reigning in our lives, and it doesn't bother us, we cheapen the cross. We cheapen his suffering. And worst of all, we cheapen the glory of God. Paul, as he wrote the letter to the church in Rome, they were living and they were, you know, they were saved, but they were living in sin because they're like, hey, we're saved, so let's go party. You know, everything's forgiven. Let's just live in sin. And Paul, in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, he goes off on them and he says, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace will increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live it in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with Christ. And risen with Christ to the glory of the Father that we may live a new life. The cross was not there so that we could continue to, be, continue to sin and it be covered. The cross was there to give us righteousness so that we would actually, for the first time, be able to pursue righteousness and holiness and actually obtain it. And when we sin so many times, we do not give sin the weight it deserves. I hear myself, because I'm with you. I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to all of us. This is why this sermon was so convicting this, this week. But when we treat sin as something we just need to move on from, we're like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I messed up, I sinned, I gotta, I gotta you know, move on, I just gotta put it behind me. No, no. We're not supposed to put our sin behind us. We're supposed to repent of our sin. Turn from it. And then Jesus' sacrifice will take that sin and he'll separate it from us as far as the east is from the west. He'll throw it to the bottom of the ocean. It's not our job to move on from our sin. It's our job to bring the sin to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And repentance is not because isn't you feel bad and say Sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is where you understand the weight of your sin and you mourn it and you come before him and you say, I am so sorry and messed up. And then it's a, a deliberate turning scene. I choose to not do this again. And if you do do it again, you're right back to saying, God, I'm sorry. Give me strength. Give me grace. Completely different than like, eh, I sin. Forgive me. The cross was not there to make light of sin. I think Jesus made it pretty clear that it cost him a lot. It cost him an extreme price. We should not take sin lightly. We should run to repentance. And then when we do repent, we need to believe him when he says, I will be just and I will forgive your sins and remove them. My challenge is please do not take sin lightly. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, if something happened, yes, we sin. We're sinners. No one's perfect. But we need to run to the cross and repent. Say, I'm sorry. Father, I choose to turn from that. 
and give it the weight that it deserves because we understand the weight of the sacrifice that was given on behalf of our sin. It was very costly. Let's not mock it. And this, this morning I want to challenge us. Let's, let's let today be a new day. Let's start fresh. Let's start with repentance. Let's become a people of repentance. Don't let sin no longer reign in your lives. And what I want to do is I want us just to spend some time. John, if you want to come on up, that'd be great. Um, I want us to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. I want you to spend some time as John will play some music and he'll be singing some. I want you just to be asking God, say, God, is there sin in my life? Is there something that I'm treating lightly when you paid a dear sacrifice for? Because we don't have to experience sin anymore. We don't have to experience the shame. We don't have to experience the condemnation. That was already paid for. Why are we paying for it when the price was already paid? It came to give us freedom. And for us to have sin in our life and be okay with it, we're totally missing the weight and the depravity and the, the wretched ruin we will become if we allow sin in our lives. This morning... This is our chance to start fresh. And what I want you to do is spend some time praying, asking the Holy Spirit. A lot of you have received, hopefully all of you received a little brown piece of paper. What I'd like you to do is as you pray and say, Father, what is, where is sin in my life? Where is stuff that I've done wrong? Would you reveal it to my mind so I could be pure and holy? I'm seeking righteousness. As he brings sin to your mind of the past that you've not surrendered, that you've not repented of. It's kind of still going. I want you to write down this piece of paper. And then what I want you to do is I want you to fold the piece of paper. Then when John starts singing, I want, I'm asking us to be a church that takes off its mask, that's open and real with each other. I'm asking you to step out in boldness and take this paper And as a symbol of saying, I'm repenting, I'm turning from my sin, I want you to come and lay it over here with all these other brown pieces of paper from the first service. I want you to lay it at the cross and say, I choose to turn, I choose righteousness, I choose holiness, and today is going to be a fresh start. You'll need lots of fresh starts. Probably tomorrow you'll need another fresh start. It's not about not sinning. It's about pursuing holiness and righteousness and being so willing to be honest and open with God and with others of saying, I repent, I turn. Can we do that this morning? Can we be open and honest with each other? So go ahead and spend some time, close your eyes, spend some time praying to the Father, ask Him to reveal sin in your life. Go ahead and start writing down what He's telling you. And then when John starts singing, just be so bold to get up out of your seat to lay it at the foot of the cross being open as as the body of Christ not trying to hide or make ourselves look better than we ought but to say we need the cross, we need repentance we need to be holy before God let's pray